earlier, um, I said that the ministry uh, description is not changing, and uh, we are updating some of the wording of it, just so you know. Okay, It's still a youth pastor job description, but the board has tweaked some of the wording on that. And uh, when I say it's not changing, it is, but, but not in a significant way. It's a youth pastor job description. But we wanted to clarify a few statements on it, just so you know, for the sake of being honest. Um, other than that, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, if you weren't with us last fall, uh, we've been going through the book of Galatians and uh, looking at the gospel, talking a lot about that, and I want to pick this up in f- this February, this month, and finish it, finish the book this month. So we're in Galatians chapter 5, uh, page 825, and after we read the text, I'll catch you all up to speed who weren't here last fall and didn't know kind of where we were going with this. Uh, this I would call this month uh, the title of this little series, Gospel Freedom, because, because what we're changing here is Galatians 1 through 4 has been primarily about theology, what's going on in the church, what needs to change, the things you need to be thinking about differently. And then Galatians 5 and 6 is kind of like, now what are you going to do now? All right, it's more like the ethical part of the letter. Okay, So if you're in Galatians 5 now, you've caught up uh, page 825 again. Here it is, Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And we'll stop there for a moment. Um, So last fall we said the Galatian church had a problem. The problem is there are certain people, certain false teachers who have infiltrated the church or the churches in the Galatia area and they have been teaching that in order to truly be part of the people of God, you need to... Yes, embrace Christ as Savior, but you also need to follow the Old Testament law. It's Jesus plus law, and that makes you part of the people of God. And Paul's writing and saying that's not how it works. The people of God is actually Jesus Christ. He's the one, and if you attach yourself to Him, you're in. If you are in Christ, who is the people of God, then you are the people of God. That that was all last fall, if you remember some of that stuff we talked about. Now, here he's coming back to it and saying, Christ has set you free. We don't need to go back and be enslaved. Now, a lot of people read verse 1 and say, that must mean enslaved to sin. But he's not talking about sin there. He's talking about being enslaved to the Old Testament law. Okay, that's what he's talking about in particular. Okay, we like to use that verse to say slave to sin, but, but that's not what he's referring to at all. So he's saying, I don't want you to go back and, and do things the way the Old Testament saints did them. Because this is new. This is different. Christ has changed things. Last fall, we talked about how Christ has replaced the law as the center of our identity. It's no longer circumcision. It's no longer law. It's now Christ. Let me give you an example. In northern Wisconsin, some people like to drive on their lakes. Okay? It's winter. The ice is solid. How many inches thick? I don't know. Ten plus. I don't know. 
so you can actually drive on the lake. In fact, I remember in Watoma when we were there, they used to have this, uh, th- this, this big party on the lake. Everybody would drive their cars on the lake and have a big celebration, and they stopped doing that after a while, but um, crazy. Just, I mean, that's a shock for an Illinois, central Illinois guy, you know? Like, well, why would you do that? Um, but I've heard in some places in Canada, um, they actually put a car, like an old junker car, in the middle of a lake, for people that, you know, are traveling across the lake to get to the other side of, you know, the town. That sounds like a joke, right? Why did the Canadian cross the lake? Well, to get to their side. Um, but, uh, so they put a junker car in the middle, and then when the ice started to thaw, you know, the car, I guess, would sink or whatever. I don't know. And then it was like, don't drive anymore across the lake. Um, and I think that's a good illustration for what's going on here. What Paul's trying to say is, in the Old Testament, that's like winter. And, and you wanted to get across the lake. You wanted to get across the other side. You wanted this relationship with God. You wanted to go to heaven when, when your time had come for you to die. How does that work? Well, God gave them the Old Testament law. He gave them circumcision. He gave them certain rites and rituals and laws in order to cross the lake. That was the ice. Let's get across. But now you can't cross the ice the same way. You're not using a car anymore. Springtime has come. The ice is melting, and now you need a boat. Okay? You need the boat. You need Christ to get you across the lake. And so it does no good for you to go back and try to go back in time and try to drive your car into the water that's already been melted. It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. You can't possibly cross the lake in your car anymore. You now need a boat. And that's what he's going for here. He's saying, if you want to keep doing the Old Testament law as a way to get to God, it doesn't work. It does not work anymore. Because Christ has come, spring has come, and everything has changed. And you can't go back. So don't try. So keeping that in mind, what he's saying here is, Christ has set us free, so we don't need to be burdened again by slavery. Um, And then he goes on and he says um, a couple of interesting things about uh, true faith. And I want you to see this. Uh, He says in verse 5, By faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what he does here, which is kind of interesting, is it's kind of like he wants to boil down, well, what is the faith? If it's not the Old Testament law anymore, then what is it? If you could describe the faith in, in terms of what we do in this life. That is, remember, faith without works is dead. So if you're going to describe an active, vibrant Christian faith, what does that look like? Because to the Old Testament saint, that was circumcision, that was keeping the commandments, that was uh, ritual purity. It was all of these things that went with being an Old Testament saint. So what now, Paul? How do you boil down the Christian faith now? he does it in two ways. Look again. I'll read him one more time. He says, But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So if Christ has set us free to relate to God in the way that God has designed it to be, if we are really free to worship, really free to have a a true religious experience with God today, what does that look like? Well, it looks like two things. 
And you have notes in your bulletins if you could pull those out. Um, we are uh, changing format for our uh, worship notes, so that'll be different hopefully in the coming couple weeks here. We have a new program. But, um, so look in your bulletins. You have that all in front of you, hopefully in there. Uh, but first of all, true religion, true faith is about waiting. It's about waiting. Now, waiting is not something I don't think we value as Americans very much. Just, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in the waiting room that long. Uh, when I go to a theme park, when I'm on vacation last year, and I am in uh, Universal's water park, and I remember I wanted to go on one of the water slides, and I'm waiting there with my kids, and it was about a 45-minute wait to get to the top and take the slide down for about 30 seconds of fun, right? 45 minutes for 30 seconds of fun. And uh, I said, I, I don't really want to do this again. I don't want to go back on that slide. Forget it. I don't want to wait. When I was in line for Space Mountain at Disney World, I'm, I'm waiting in line, and it's long. And, and, I, and I noticed that, that there was this little, uh, uh, I don't know, this little separator thing from one, my part of the line to this other part of the line, and you could push it and go right through it, you know? And I thought, I'm in this part of the line that's really long, and I could just go through here and just get into the short line, right? You know? Um, I didn't do it, but I was tempted to because I don't like waiting. We don't like waiting. But, but this scripture says the Christian faith is about waiting. Of all the things Paul could have said about what the faith really is, if you boil it down, one thing the Christian faith is, is waiting. Now, because I think it, this is an American value to have what I want right now, I, I think that's something that we do in this country uh, a lot. I'm not surprised to read books that try to put, try to couch the Christian faith in terms of what I get right now. How many book titles that you know that say today and now and what you receive in this moment? In fact, I read a book, um, it was uh, Rob Bell's controversial book, Love Wins. I don't really recommend it, but um, I wanted to see what he had to say. He, he writes a lot about hell in that book, and I disagree with a lot of that. But he has a chapter on heaven. And he talks about bringing heaven to earth now. And some of it I like what he says. I like what he says about how we pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as Christians, we should be working towards making this more like a place where God's will is done. I mean, that's the kingdom of God going on here. When, when Jesus came, he says, he, he inaugurated his coming with his kingdom. He's preaching the kingdom to the people. So, if the kingdom of God is now at hand, and that was marked by ministries of compassion, of healing people, of taking care of needs, of forgiving sins, if that's what Jesus was about, there's a lot of things we can do to make this place a little more like heaven. I, I get that. I agree with that. But this is not heaven. And what we are expecting is not going to happen fully in this life. We are awaiting people. He says, we're waiting for the righteousness for which we hope. Righteousness reflects a right standing with God. God gives you his righteousness. And in some ways, we're waiting for the day when everything God says about us is really becomes proved. I'll use that word, proved. It's kind of like when, uh, you know, you take your kids to the buffet and you tell them, you know, uh, one dessert, maybe two. You want to lead by example, and you had two, so you probably can't tell them not to have two. But, um, uh, <clears throat> but you say one, maybe two. But, 
And, and then they go back for thirds. And, and you say, I'm warning you, if you eat all that, you're going to be sick afterwards. And, and But you let them go and they do what they want. And they, they eat all this food, all this chocolate, and then they get out and they're sick. You know, And then you as a parent, you don't say it, but you know it in your heart. You want to say, I told you so, right? I told you. Probably you do say that, but... Um, <laughs> If you're if you're spiteful like me, I told you so, and uh, and your kids are sick. If you have a heart, you say, "Oh, I'm so sorry," um, but I told you so. Well, there is a divine "I told you so" coming in our future, right? We're going to stand before God one day, and He's going to look at the quality of our work that we did in this life, and He's going to say, "You are righteous." You see, I told you so. I told you in the Bible that you were justified. Justified means declared righteous. I told you. But one day, it's not going to be something that you read in the Bible. It's going to be something that you hear God actually say one day. And we're waiting for that. We're waiting for all that we believe to be proved beyond a shadow of a doubt. For our faith to turn to sight. That's still to come. And so Paul says, we're waiting for righteousness. But we're not waiting by the flesh. I mean, how do we normally wait in this life? If you wait according to the flesh, you're sitting in a waiting room waiting for the doctor and you just sit there, right? You're reading a magazine. It's not necessarily productive time, right? If you're waiting at a theme park, you're just kind of standing there and it's not something, something amazing is not really going on during that wait in the line. But look at how he describes waiting in Galatians 5, uh, verse 5. By faith we eagerly await so there's there's this sense of anticipation it's an emotional thing it's something that gets our hearts we eagerly await through the spirit through the spirit this isn't waiting in the flesh when i hear people talk about churches that that are dying or becoming stagnant i think they're referring to christians who are waiting for heaven and they feel like that waiting means they just do life as normal status quo right Let's just do things the way we've always done them. But that is waiting in the flesh. That's just biding our time until we pass on to the next life. Waiting by the Spirit is an active waiting. It's an active waiting. It's the Spirit producing in us good works. It's Him moving in us to do things that God has planned for, He's planned for us to do. It's an active kind of waiting. It's not sitting around. It's being alert. It's being watchful. Those are the words Jesus uses to describe it. It's us doing all that he's called us to do. That is the waiting that we're doing. So somehow we want to balance this and say, there's so much in the next life we have to look forward to. There's so much in this life yet for us to do. And isn't that the tension Paul had, right? You know, I, I, I'm living right here, and I, I know, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. You know, he says, it's so much better if I could go and be with Jesus. I know that, I get that. I mean, he had visions of heaven. He understands how great it would be to be there. But he's here. And to live is Christ. He gets to live out the life, life of Christ. He gets to do the work of the Spirit. He gets to wait, eagerly await, the righteousness for which he hopes. And while he's here, he's got a lot of work to do. And so I say, I read that chapter by Rob Bell. I disagree with much of what he says in his book. 
But I read that chapter and I thought to myself, I know that this can't be heaven down here, but we certainly ought to work for God's kingdom while we're here. We ought to be doing the same kinds of things Jesus was doing. Caring for people's needs, loving people well, sharing the gospel. That's what we're here to do. We're we're actively waiting while we're here on earth. So don't let yourself fall into one of the other categories where it's a passive waiting and we're kind of just doing life, doing the normal thing. That's not good. And don't go to the other extreme where we say, this life is it. You know, it's all health and all wealth for us because God's given it to us all now. We know that that's not true either. We know that's not true. So it's an active waiting through the Spirit. Um, Another thing Paul says in verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So if true faith is about waiting, true faith is also about loving. True faith is about loving. This is what we have to offer the world. The world wants love. They want to experience love. And we ought to be offering that to them. That's one of the main things we have about our faith, is love. We have a God who describes himself as love. True faith is about loving. I was reading uh, an article last week about uh, the founder of Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy, and he uh, apparently befriended a homosexual activist. And you know there's been tons of stuff in the news about Chick-fil-A and their stance on marriage between one man and one woman. And, and there's, there's these different homosexual activist groups that are op- opposing them. And, and, and they're going in there and, and flaunting their uh, sexuality in Chick-fil-A. And, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on with that in our country right now. And it was amazing to read an article. And the article was written by the homosexual activist. It was written from his perspective. And basically what he said was, he said, I was, I was very reluctant for this person, the founder of Chick-fil-A, to somehow you know, befriend me and be kind to me and love me, to meet my partner. I, I was very uncomfortable with all this. But over time, he earned his respect. Over, they're, they're dialoguing on their differences. And neither of them are compromising. That never happened. But they're able to talk in a loving way to each other. And, and I don't have all the answers to that that issue in America today. I mean, freedom. Freedom, right? We're talking about freedom. How free should people be? Can we marry whoever we want to marry? I mean, those are big, big questions of freedom. But, but I love the example of Dan Cathy to say, that doesn't absolve me from the responsibility of loving well and befriending someone who's probably as different as I can imagine. And so he invited him to the Chick-fil-A Bowl, and they watched the football game together, and, and they have this friendship. I was reading the comments. I read the article by the activist, and then I read the comments underneath from other people. And you could tell, when you read the comments from people, you can see the ones that are more uh, faith-minded, because they're saying, this is beautiful, this is loving. And then you've got the people who, who just want their agenda pushed And they're very angry and said, he is compromised. 
he sh- I mean, I mean, I mean the homosexual activists say he is compromised. He's he's not really one of us, and he should never have done this. And he's been lured in by Dan Cathy's billions of dollars. He's lured in by money, and and Cathy only did that because uh, he wants good publicity, and you know all this stuff out there about this. And at the end of the day, I look at this and go, you know, you're not going to win everybody over. You're not. But we got to do our best to love, even if it's not accepted. Even if some of the world says, you can keep your love, we just want our way. Again, I don't have the answer to all that. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, we've got to love. This is what the faith is. This is what we do. And I know there's a place for uh, righteous indignation. You know, we're going to talk about that this weekend at, the, um, at, the, at Winterfest. You know, righteous indignation. Jesus getting angry and, and turning over the tables in the temple, right? But when I read the four Gospels, I see Jesus' anger, and it's mostly directed at religious fakes. That's what I see. I don't see him angry at lost people that act like lost people. I see the anger primarily coming out at religious phonies who act like they got it together but are actually leading people astray. That's who he saves his anger for. So I think we as a church, have to be cautious on how we get angry, how often we get angry. And does it reflect the kind of things Jesus gets angry about? Will we love people well who don't think like us, who want to promote their agenda against us? Are we going to love them well? We have to. Because our faith is about loving. That's how Paul boils it down. So true faith is about loving. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit here because Paul has a few more words to say. I won't spend too long on this, but he wants to say now what, he wants to talk a little bit about false religion. He wants to talk a little bit about those agitators in the church and the Galatian churches that are trying to teach them to follow the Old Testament law. Here's what he says about them. If you look at verse 7. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. And yes, that's what he's saying. Um, one of, the most, one of the more sarcastic comments from the Apostle Paul um, that needs no explanation by me. Uh, <laughs> what is false religion? What is false religion? I give you four points from what Paul says here. False religion, first of all, opposes the call of God. It opposes the call of God. Uh, look at how Paul says it here. Um, you were running a good race. Who cut on you and who kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. These agitators are teaching you something, and, and you're kind of buying it. You're kind of going with it. But, but that persuasion that they're doing doesn't come from the one who persuaded you in the beginning, from the one who calls you. So false teaching, false religion. Even if you talk about a church, 
that, ha- that, that, is, that is gospel preaching, but they have some false doctrine in the church. I'm not trying to label anybody now or label denominations, but we, we can think of some things like that. That doesn't come from the one who calls you. So at some point in your life, you felt called by God and you gave your life to him. There was some internal voice, I believe, the voice of God speaking into your soul. That persuasion that you had at that time is very different from a persuasion later to to follow a false doctrine. Those are different. Those are very different. So if you ever get to talking to somebody that was once in the church and then maybe went off track and became, say, a Jehovah's Witness, their calling as a JW is going to be very different from their calling to follow Christ. There's got to be a categorical, there's got to be an internal difference in what's going on in those two places. Maybe bring that up and see where that goes sometime. I remember them coming to my door and uh, we, we talked and, and I don't know if I, if I shared my, my experiences with Jehovah's Witnesses. If I shared that here? No? Yes? No? Okay. I just can't remember. Um, but they would come to my door and, and they didn't know they were talking to like a pastor. That, I mean, not that I'm saying I'm better than anybody else, but, but they didn't know they were talking to someone in the church at all. And, and I just kind of went along and I was talking to them. And it's amazing because, you know, you can take the Watchtower Bible with, with all of its errors and with all of its changes, and they're in there. You can still find passages that point to Christ. You know, you can find Jesus in there. I took them to Revelation, and I showed them how uh, Revelation 5, you know, is, is the throne room of God. Who's getting glorified on the throne in Revelation? Jesus. They're praising the Lamb that was slain, Okay. And then you can take another part of Revelation towards the end. I believe it's uh, you know, 21, 22, where uh, it talks about uh, wh- where John kind of falls down and worships the angel. And the angel says, don't worship me. You can only worship God. And so I said, okay, if Revelation says only worship God, you agree with that, right? Yes. And in Revelation 5, you've got Jesus being worshipped. No, it doesn't mean that. It can't, it can't mean that. It can't mean that. You see... Um, false teaching is very different than the call of God. When you open the word of God and read it and it speaks into your soul, that is a different thing entirely. Let's count on it. Speaking into the lives of people who are, who have their minds clouded by false religion. Uh, false religion also spreads rapidly. He compares it to yeast going through a whole batch of dough. It should come as no surprise when you flip the channel and, and you see some mega church and you know, and, and the pastor gets up there. And again, I'm not pointing anybody out this morning, but you see the pastor get up there and they're talking about health and wealth and it's all yours and God wants you to have the Lexus. I've heard these people say this, you know, and, uh, and they promote this for all Christians that really have faith. And, and, you, and you watch this and, and you go, no. This is enticing, and that church is full because a little yeast works through the dough. It's what our itching ears want to hear. It spreads rapidly. Okay? So false religion spreads rapidly. Um, Number three, false religion, though, will not prevail. He says, I'm confident in the Lord, this is verse 10, that you will take no other view. The one who's throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whomever he may be. I am confident in the Lord, you will take no other view. 
Paul is sure that a true Christian will stay a true Christian. He's confident in the Lord that they're going to take the right view. They're not going to compromise the faith. Earlier he said, if, if you believe another message, if someone teaches you another message, let them be anathema. Let them be eternally cursed. Okay, that's, that's heavy words. If you want to believe this, you have fallen away from grace. You are alienated from Christ. Okay, but, but if you're truly in Christ, you're going to continue in Christ. Jesus' sheep know his voice, he says. That's in the Gospel of John. My sheep know my voice. And so Christians might be fooled for a time. There might be false doctrine that leaks in, and you might be fooled for a time. But God will keep his church pure. God will work out his correct doctrine in your life. He will keep you. He has the power to do that if you've trusted your life to him. So false religion will not prevail. And fourthly, false religious teachers will be judged. He says, again, the one who's throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Maybe he doesn't know who it is. Maybe he doesn't know who these people are. But he says, they will be judged for what they're doing. And that's serious. So uh, what I want to do, though, is summarize. I want to do a fifth point or maybe a summary point about false religion. I thought of this after I I sent my notes um, in for for printing. But if you want to summarize what false religion does, let me give it to you. False religion does not make Christ supreme. False religion, if you really want to boil it down, false religion doesn't make Christ supreme. Christianity, our church seeks to make Christ supreme in all things. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, we're going to be in, you know, that throne room scene is going to be reality, and we're going to be praising the Lamb who was slain. Okay? Over and over in the New Testament, you read that, that God wants to make His Son Jesus supreme over everything. Read the first part of Colossians chapter 1, and, and you'll just get hit by that. He's the firstborn over all creation. God wants to place everything under his feet. Jesus is it. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay? That is making Christ supreme in your life. It's all about him. False religion, though, has to somehow lower Jesus. False religion will remove the centrality of the cross. That's why Paul says, um, brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, this is verse 11, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Paul knows the cross is offensive because the cross says you can't earn it, you can't do it because he already did it. Your sin is so ugly that God had to die for it. That's how lost we really are. So, Most of the religions of the world, in fact, all the ones that I know of, are more about self-effort, okay? The pillars of Islam. It's what you do. Jehovah's Witnesses, you've got to go door to door. It's what you do. I once asked one of them when they came to my door, if I want to accept Christ right now and I want to be saved, what do I got to do? Well, come to our Bible study. No, no, I don't want to come to your Bible study. I want to know right now, how do I give my life to Christ? You've got to come and hear more. Come to the Bible, you know. No, right? (laughs) 
I want to do this now. I want to make Christ supreme right now. Because it's not about your Bible study. It's about Christ. And the fact is they've lowered Christ to one of many deities. They've lowered Christ. And that's how you can tell a false religion. Because it's the will of God to glorify His Son above all things. That's the will of God. It's the will of false religion. It's the will of Satan to lower the Son of God. That's how you can tell. So, I want to close this message like this. I've talked a lot about true religion and false religion. I want to ask you a question. Why are you a Christian? Why? Why do you belong to this faith? Can I get anybody brave enough to give an answer to the church? Why? Yes. Okay. God chose you. Jesus called you out of darkness into his glorious light. It's the truth. It's the truth. Anyone else? He loves us. Anyone else? He paid the penalty for us. He first loved you. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, God has called you. God has called you. And somehow he confirmed the reality of this in your heart. You say he loved you. You say he died for you. Did you see it? No. You read about it. And God did this internal working in your heart to confirm that this is true. This is not made up. He chose you. Someone. He chose you. He called you. Paul says, Galatian church, the persuasion that you're hearing from those agitators, that doesn't come from the one who called you. If you are a Christian today, it's because God in His grace has called you to Himself. He confirmed it in your heart and you responded in faith of your own free will to say, yes, Lord, it's true, I want in. I want in. If you're here this morning and you've not done that, I just want to invite you, this is a perfect chance to do that. If you want to say, Christ, I want in, I want to believe you, I want to trust you, um, let's do that now. If you would close your eyes and bow your heads. And if you're here and you're saying, I feel God's calling right now. I feel that, that Jesus is speaking into my soul right now and saying, I died for you, I love you, I want you as my own. If you're hearing your shepherd talking to you this morning, let's pray and commit yourself to him. Would you look up at me if you want to pray this morning and do that? If that's you and you want to commit yourself to him. All right. I want to invite you to say a simple prayer. It's not magic. Let's pray. Father, um, I just want to commit my life to you. I hear you speaking into my heart this morning. And so I believe that you died for me, Jesus. You paid for my sin. And you are alive today. You rose from the grave three days later. And I want to follow you as your child. Please change me. Please make me a new person. 
Help me follow you all of my days. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.